This is a Harper Guys production. The following will contain adult subject matter and may not be suitable for all audiences. heard of going to prison to become a serial killer welcome to the gallows this is jake with me as always my co-host adam who as always will get us started with our quick little psa yo all right visit us at thegallowspodcast.com from there you can go to our facebook and twitter links you can also visit us everywhere podcasts are found if you have questions comments or case ideas please email us at thegallowspod at gmail.com Perfect. So a couple things going on in the world of executions. Today was a day. 921, Anthony Sanchez was executed by Oklahoma earlier today. Uh, He had murdered and raped an Oklahoma student in 1996. I don't know if you remember this guy. He's the one that we talked about a little bit on uh, one of the previous shows. After his father had passed away, then his criminal defense was that his dad had did it. That's why the DNA matched him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sounds familiar. That's one of the biggest dirtball things I've ever heard, that you're going to try to throw your deceased father under the bus. Well, in a survival or dog-eat-dog world, you just you do what you can. Yeah. Well, I guess he took the, if you can't beat him, join him approach, huh? Something. Yeah. So uh, that actually happened today. Uh, coming up next on 10-3, we got Michael Zack out of Florida. He murdered two women who were on vacation, separate vacations, uh, in Florida in 1996. Coming up on 1010 in Texas, we got Jedediah Murphy. He raped and murdered a 79-year-old woman. This was actually uh, kind of a middle finger from Governor Abbott down in Texas. Uh, He's been getting a lot of heat. That is National Objective Capital Punishment Day, and he said, all right, let's celebrate. So he put an execution on that day just to try to make a point. I don't know if I love the politics of that, but there's some irony to be said for sure. And then 1026, we got William Spear out of Texas. He actually uh, killed a fellow prisoner, but he has been locked up in the system since he was 16. Wow. That is a life of crime right there. Enjoys the inside. Right. You never even have a chance to vote. Like, that's disheartening whenever you hear those stories, no no matter if it's the right thing or not, you know? Yeah. So that leads us to tonight's monster. So... This is going to be more of a, a retrospective kind of on him. I just want to make sure that we covered everything. There's not a lot of drama as to whether or not this guy committed a murder, right? Just so that we're clear kind of how this setup's coming in. You're not. There's no who done it in this case. All right. All right. So through, 
when you look at different names in history, you know what I mean? I feel like there's names that pop out. You know what I mean? They're like famously infamous murderers, you know, people that have committed crimes that are famous exactly for that, right? Uh, how this guy doesn't fall on that list, I have absolutely no idea how I had not heard of this guy. Uh, his name is Robert Charles Gleason. Uh, born in May of 1970, he has a classic story. Uh, he was in trouble a lot as a kid. He grew up uh, a, a tough South Boston home. It was just a rough upbringing for him. Uh, his father was an, an alcoholic, physically violent. That's where he learned to kind of be part of the physical violence scene. Um, he got to a point where as a as a 17-year-old, legend has it that he knocked his father out, kind of taken over the, the man role. He went from there and started to get himself in and out of a bunch of trouble. You know, nothing that was too crazy for a while, but he did get involved pretty heavily in drugs. And he ended up running with a group of guys that were a known gang in the area at the time, and then they actually fell into a larger uh, methamphetamines conglomerate to where this thing actually became pretty far reaching as it went. Another thing that really worked well in his favor is that by time he was of age, he was 6'2", 235 pounds. And he was a guy that was known to kind of revel in violence. Uh, he would be the kind of guy that would go out and look for a bar fight. You know what I mean? Like he had demons and that's how he kind of took the entire thing out uh, on the world. You know, he actually uh, maintained a steady life on some level though while 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 these years were going on he was uh, actually a really well known tattoo artist in the area which i thought was interesting that somebody would have a talent like that you know and have a reputation but still end up still having this life of crime thing that ends up kind of being the presiding part of their life yeah a talent they could maybe even you know make a living a good living at a real good living yeah i mean especially these days good t- tattoo artists these days i mean because this guy wouldn't be old by today's standard at all you know right I mean, there's a lot of tattoo artists in their 50s and 60s that have been doing a long time that are super good at what they do so so as his life of crime starts to develop this takes us to 2007 and this is when his name is robert gleason i just want to re-mention that again so that you know who he is as we talk about him through the story his first known murder occurred in 2007. He's 37 years old at this point. So it's not like he's a young, dumb 20-year-old kid, right? He's lived an adult life up to this point and had some kind of a life, right? Well, he ends up fatally shooting a a guy named Michael Kent Jamerson right off of the highway of Virginia 130. This is in western Amherst County in Virginia. So he's originally from Boston, had relocated to Virginia by this point of his life. What happened is pretty chilling. He actually lured this gentleman, Jamerson, younger guy in his mid-20s at the time. Uh, he offered him a great deal on some meth if he wanted to ride along for the pickup. Like, hey, ride along. I'll sell you whatever for whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. It seems like a good way to get somebody that's in the drug trade to kind of go along with you, you know, especially if they don't suspect anything's up, right? So they're riding down the highway, and he says, hey, I got to take a leak, and they pull off the side of the road. So he does his business, and he's like, hey, get out of the car. I want to talk to you for a minute. He gets out of the car and he starts basically saying, hey, man, I know you're a rat. I know that you're working to try to get us in some kind of trouble here. And according to him, he's like, no, no, I would never do that, yada, yada, yada. Well, then he starts questioning him hard about, hey, did you talk to the police on this date? Did you talk to the police on that date? And he couldn't deny that he had done any of those things. Uh, Partway through, he's trying to defend himself. All of a sudden, Gleason pulls out a gun, shoots him four times. Chest, head, head, chest. Those are the four consecutive shots. Like, that does not leave a lot of room for error. You know what I mean? There's nothing about this that was defending yourself. And like that. I mean, this is straight, brutal homicide, right? 
So what he does is he actually takes his body and he drags it into a nearby field, right? Not the greatest job of trying to cover this up. It was just a couple of days later, you had a guy that was actually out turkey hunting and stumbles upon this in the woods. I have said this before. I don't even know what I would do. Like, that would be an insane moment to come up upon a body, especially in a woods that you know. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I would be creeped out all the way by it, mm-hmm. you know? I just We spent time in the woods. Like I just, I don't know. I feel like that would mar the entire experience going forward. Yeah. You know what I mean? So the, the turkey hunter ends up finding this guy. And then two days later after they find him, there is actually a college student that's down by the James River. He's actually just down there fishing. Right there laying on the bank, he finds a pistol. So he calls the police. Police come check it out. It takes them not very long at all to where they were able to match up the gun with that, right? Well, like I mentioned, he was part of this ring, and he really thought that this guy was going to snitch on him, right? Well, he didn't think his crime through very well because they found fingerprints still on the gun. So this thing had been outside for four to five days at this point when they find it, right? They find this thing, still has fingerprints on it, which I think is crazy. And then they actually have a very credible eyewitness that picked him out of a lineup, saw him getting back into his car after the shooting with blood on him. Like, so he does this in the middle of the day, gets caught. Like, not, 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 not an award being handed down for being the, the greatest criminal on this, right? So after the authorities have all this information, they actually go and they arrest him right at, it's actually called Mama's Tattoo Shop, which is a great name for a tattoo shop, by the way, right? For sure. So he gets arrested, no incidents at all. He goes right in, you know, no time at all. They got him going up for trial. Things are moving along like any normal trial would. And then on the second day of trial, he just loses it in the middle of court. Starts screaming at the judge, basically saying that the court's out of order, loses his mind. They actually physically remove him from the court. Judge goes back and talks to him, and he tells the judge, he's like, I want to get this over with today. I don't want to go through this process anymore. And he pleads guilty to the murder, which you don't see this very often. You know what I mean? Very rarely. And there's actually reports coming back that they had actually offered him a murder, too, before the trial started, and he turned it down, where he would have done 20 and out, right? Which is kind of crazy to me especially where this story ends up going, to where if he would have made one other decision there, not that anybody wants to do 20 years, but even if you get 20, maybe you're out in 10. You know what I mean? Like, right. there's always a give-take to this entire right. thing. Well, I mean, with some of the uh, the rules and whatnot, yeah. Right. But he, he pleads guilty to, to the capital murder charge, and he's actually sentenced to life, and he's sent to Wallens Ridge State Prison. That's in Virginia. So he gets to prison, and Gleason is a little bit of a loner when he gets there. He kind of keeps to himself the first couple years. He's not a problem inmate. Like, they don't really have a lot of records on him because he gets there, and he just kind of falls into his own thing, right? Well, right at the two-year mark, it was actually a couple weeks before the two years got there, they gave him a cellmate, right? And this was a terrible decision. So, Gleason actually loathes this cellmate. The guy's name is Harvey Gray Watson Jr. Okay, now he tells officials at Wallens Ridge that I hate this guy, right? And he goes to his counselors, he goes to corrections officers, anybody that will listen. And they say, and he says, hey, if you don't remove Watson from my shell, bad shit is going to go down. Well, they didn't listen for a solid week, a solid week in early May of 2009, the 63-year-old guy. Now, this 63-year-old, his name is Watson, right? He's serving a 100-year sentence for killing a man and wounding two others with a 10-gauge shotgun in 1983. 100 years. And Gleason's own words, he said he became an obnoxious fuck overnight 
in that it disrupted his uneventful, incarcerated existence. That doesn't sound like stupid to me, though, either. Like, those are his words explaining exactly what happened. Like, this guy's going along, doing his time, not being a problem to anybody. I mean, you would think lifers, what do they got to lose at that point? You know what I mean? This guy's kind of towing the line when he first get there. I'm not saying this guy's a saint. I'm just saying he wasn't a problem. But then you put this problem guy with him, I don't love it, right? So Watson, the cellmate, he actually suffers from mild mental impairment. He spent almost every minute of his day with Gleason locked up in this 8x10 cell. That sounds horrific. And some of the shit he did, man, like, I, it would drive me nuts. He was known to sing verses from the song Dixie for hours on end, the same song again and again and again. And he could start singing at 6 and not stop till 8. He could stop singing at 2 o'clock in the morning and go until they come to let him out for breakfast. I mean, at some point, that's got to drive people absolutely crazy. And then... He finally agreed to stop doing that. He would just holler expletives all day long, and then he was a compulsive masturbator. Multiple times, all day long, right in front of him, never stopped, right? So during eating hours, rec times, shit like this, people would mess with this Watson guy because they knew that he was a little bit off, right? They would get him to drink his own piss and spoiled milk in exchange for cigarettes. That doesn't surprise me in prison life. You know what I mean? These guys are trying to get through their days. Does it surprise you that they're going to fuck with another inmate? Not at that all. doesn't surprise me in the least at all. <clears throat> no. Well, Gleason got to his breaking point, and it didn't matter what he did. He tried one more time, like begging them, please get rid of him. Please make this stop. Wouldn't do it. So it was actually the eighth day that they were together. It was like, it's time to come to an end. Here we go. He actually would say afterwards, that day I knew I was going to kill him, and Wallen's Ridge forced my hand. He's already deflecting blame. At this point, right? Well, the witching hour comes when the bed checks are over and the lights go out on the eighth night. It was sometime right around midnight. Gleason actually ties Watson's hands and arms to his torso using fragments from bed sheets. Kind of a genius. He also fashions a gag out of a pair of socks. That way you can't scream, right? Well, Gleason soon removed the, ga- the gag and lit a cigarette for Watson. He knew he was a smoker and he told him, you should really enjoy this because this is going to be your last cigarette. That's kind of chilling. Like nothing's even happened really yet. You got the guy tied up. Watson, in return, decides he's going to spit on Gleason's face as soon as the, he had the smoke out of his mouth. Gleason responded to this by hopping right onto his chest, beating him and ultimately strangling him to death. Gleason then covered the corpse with a bedsheet to make it look like he was sleeping and officials wouldn't actually discover his murdered body until almost dinner time the following day. He just left him laying there all day long while he's out in the yard doing things. Like, that's how much disregard he had for another human being, no matter how annoyed he was with him, right? So in the aftermath of Watson's strangulation death, Gleason, who again, already serving a life sentence for killing Jamerson, told the Associated Press, I murdered that man cold-bloodedly. I planned it, and I'm going to do it again. Someone needs to stop it. The only way to stop me is to put me on death row. Now, what you have here, to this point of the story, you have a guy that killed somebody on the outside because he thought that they were going to get him put in prison, right? He gets to prison. He tells everybody he's going to murder this guy, right? Nobody listens. He now murders this guy. Now, the third time, he's saying, hey, I'm going to keep doing this now. Like, you have one choice here. They don't take it that seriously. So it's not just the brutality in some ways. I mean, this is brutal. 
no matter how you slice it. I mean, you're talking tying up and beating somebody to death. That's a very intimate, dark thing, right? Yeah. But, but he's also very clear about everything he does, and he's almost like bragging about it. You know what I mean? And he said that he killed Watson to ensure that he would never be released or have the opportunity to testify against him in another case. Like, that's his rationale. You know, that he's never going to let that guy get out of prison, and that guy's never going to be able to tell a word that he's ever said to him in their cell. That's, again, I don't, I don't love the rationale. Like, but it shows you who we're actually dealing with in this case, right? So while he's incarcerated for the murder of Harvey Watson, his appetite for violence, it, it kind of starts to pick up. He's getting the notoriety. Everybody, he's getting famous for this because he killed somebody now in prison, right? Like, this is not a one-time thing. Now you're in prison for forever. And he goes on this violence spree behind closed doors. He becomes an enforcer for a couple of different groups in there to where he's carrying out stabbings, beating people up constantly. I mean, he's built for the job. He's got the mentality for the job. And he's remorseless about the entire thing. He admits to several beatings, several stabbings. But for what he's already got hanging over his head, what does it matter? Like, to me, how is this guy still being put into Gen Pop every day, knowing that this is how he's conducting himself? Like, if there was somebody built for solitary, isn't this it? Yeah. Right. I mean... Definitely should be a couple thoughts going through this process. Yeah. I mean, it got to the point where in, in interviews afterwards, they asked him about this portion of it. And he said, I assaulted several inmates. Some of them were for hire and others were for pure sport. Yeah. So, so in the annals of all of this, what is unquestionably his most notorious act actually occurs in 2010, right? And this is when he's going to strangle Aaron Cooper. This guy was actually a cellmate of his, right? And on July 28th, 2010, Gleason was in solitary confinement pen, right? And there's a common wire fence right there that him and Cooper shared. They were cellmates. They had them in back-to-back pens out in the yard. I I don't know if you've seen this to where when you're in, like, hypersecurity, you don't get to be in the yard with everybody else anymore. You know, now, now they've got him segregated out like this, but he still has a cell guy, right? So... He's talking to him, and he says, hey, why don't you try on this religious necklace that I had made, right? And Cooper goes over, and he leans back. Now, Cooper's a smaller guy. I mean, Cooper's young 30s at the time to where he's about a decade younger, you know, not a large-framed person. He goes, turns around, and as soon as he's got it around his nest, he starts to strangle him immediately. Well, he strangled him until he turned purple, and then he lets go. And he sat there, and he waited for the color to come back into his face. As soon as it did, he starts strangling him again. This happened over the course of an hour. Like, that is a long time to keep doing this, right? Gleason described himself as laughing at the reaction of other inmates. Other inmates were screaming for guards, trying to get him to stop doing what he's doing. He's finding this, the whole thing, to be hilarious, right? Then he's watching and he's mocking prison staff as they try to revive Cooper once they finally get on scene. I mean, I can't even imagine, like, to read it, I can't imagine what the moment's like physically being there. You know what I mean? Like, that's got to be heightened to 11. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. Unfathomable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Cooper, not an angel himself, he was actually serving a 34-year sentence for carjacking and robbery. Right now, Gleason gets charged for his capital murder, obviously, and they describe this as the willful, deliberate and premeditated killing of more than one person within a three year period. So that's why they're able to bring an actual capital murder charge against him. Right. He's a repeat offender of violent crime like this. So on April 22nd of 2011, Gleason pleads guilty to the murder of Cooper 
and he informs the court that he deliberately targeted Cooper so as to make a point to the prosecutor and as a favor to another inmate who was to be released soon. Now, this was so that the inmate would owe Gleason and Gleason would have somebody on the outside of the prison to do his bidding. So he's like, look, Mr. Prosecutor, give me what I'm asking for here. But if you're not going to, at least now I got somebody on the outside to do what I need him to do by silencing this guy. That's a hell of a thing to do for a favor, right? Well, they accept both pleas in the court for him pleading guilty, and it actually kind of unprecedented. They have a two-day multi-joint sentencing proceeding. So they have two judges and two panels that actually sit on this, considering the evidence to decide whether or not they're actually going to give this guy a death sentence. They also reviewed his pre-sentence report. So they got to see everything about the first murder with Jameson, the second murder with Watson, right? So like they're getting the full scope. It's not like it's just what happened with Mr. Cooper here, right? So Gleason, after this point, he's already waived his post-sentence report. The court said, okay, and they gave him his death sentence. Right. And they said that in the in the ruling that finding that the aggressive, aggravating factors of both vileness and future dangerous acts in both cases are beyond a reasonable doubt and concluded that these factors were not outweighed by mitigating facts. The reign of terror should be over. That is an actual court document. Basically, long story short, what's that telling us? We know he did it. He's going to do it again if we don't stop him. Mm-hmm. We don't really have a choice here. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're finally listening to him. Yeah. Well, What we didn't know was while he was on trial for that, he commits a third murder while in prison, right? Basically, he's already on the hook. He just hasn't gone to trial for for murdering Cooper yet, right? At this point, what the hell does he have to lose? Right. He's just on a rampage. Right. So this is still in 2010. He's actually awaiting. He brutally murders Eric M. Jones. This is another inmate that's at Wallen Ridge State Prison. After he murders Cooper, somehow he gets back into general population at some point in time. I can't find any description in any of the court documents as to how this happens, right? He gets out of a single-person yard and is somehow back among other people. I don't understand that. So Eric Jones, according to his testimony, was known for bullying and intimidation and had targeted one of his friends, right? But he also said that he has other reasons that he'll never disclose. Also, all of these statements come well after the fact. He... They tried to come after him for the murder when it happened. They had no physical evidence. Where he murdered him at, there was no camera view that could show the actual murder taking place. The crime weapon that was used at the scene, no fingerprints on it at all. He was bludgeoned to death with a handle, right? But there's no actual evidence that ties him to it, right? He was found with his head caved in from a beating that was so brutal they couldn't identify the inmate by his face. Like... That's insanity, right? When he was interviewed, he alluded to the murder murder, and said that if he did not receive his death sentence from the Cooper case, that he would confess to another murder that he had committed in prison. So basically admitting it without saying he was going to admit it. So it was like, this is like his ace in the hole at that point in time. Like, guy's crazy, right? I mean, are we, are we allowed to call him crazy at this point? I mean, he, something, I mean. Right. But at the same time, he knows what the fuck he's doing. Right. Oh, he definitely knows what he's doing. So all this is said and done. We've got four murders that are 100% attributed to him and that he's claimed to have had participated in more on the outside before being arrested in Jamerson's murder. He said some of the murders he committed were for business and others for pure pleasure because he had a low tolerance for people that were rude or didn't mind their own business. So we don't even really know is that 
him boasting after he's already out. The problem I have with people that think that way is he's got the propensity for this. He has shown this on multiple occasions. You know what I mean? It's not like I'm going to do this and it's an empty threat, right? But whatever the reality of that number is, he gets his desired fate in 2013. This brings us to the execution. So death row inmates in Virginia long have had the option to choose between lethal injection or the electric chair. This actually started in 1995, right? Gleason, from that period on, was the seventh out of 79 to choose the chair. And that's a ballsy choice, right? Like I think if you're as bad of an ass as this guy is, right. you don't go out with no freaking... Right. There ain't no prick to the arm. No Tylenol in my arm. Let's go. Yeah. So at 8.55 p.m., they bring him into the death chamber. He's surrounded by execution team members, the largest assembled up to that point in time execution group ever because they didn't know what this guy was going to do. Was he going to try to take one with him on the way out? Like, they didn't know what they were dealing with, right? There's probably a few weapons in that room. Right. They quickly get him strapped into the wooden electric chair at his chest, his arms, and his ankles. He smiles, winks, and nods a few times towards his spiritual advisor, which I will note, the only person he met with. He didn't see his family at all that day which is interesting to me. The advisor's name was Tim Bam Bam Spreadering uh, of the Richmond Orca Outreach Center. And he said he believed that Gleason was indicating to him that he was well and that he was ready, you know, to, to accept his sentence. After making a, a last statement, they put a wide leather strap on him and covered his eyes and mouth with a hole over his nose. Now this was placed over his face and secured to the back of the chair. Then he asked if he could make a final statement. He said, okay. He said, he said, I hope that they wet the sponge unlike they did in Green Mile. Like, so this guy has some kind of a morbid sense of humor. He, he, <laughs> sorry, it was actually, uh, I hope Percy wet the sponge like he didn't in Green Mile. So, like, yeah. he, he knows yeah. what's going on. It's the first thing I think about when, I'm, when you're telling me the story about the chair. Yeah. Like, Hope they got it right. Right. And then he said, somebody call my Irish friends Pogue Maho, which means kiss my ass. Right? So this guy's going out all the way. So after they get that done, they restrap everything back into place. He's now covered from the face. They put a brine-soaked sea sponge fitted to the right calf, and then they also put another one on top of his head with the old metal clamp going on. So this thing is definitely the old-school version, too. You know what I mean? Like, this is not any kind of a modern-day Type thing, right? We don't got no updates here. Right. So they hook the power cables onto his head and his leg, and then there's a key in the wall that they use to activate the system. Now, fully automated system, though, here, which I think is interesting, right? Now, they have a member of the execution team watching the chair and a separate member that is watching basically the instruments to make sure that everything goes off here without a hitch, right? First cycle of electricity that hits him, 1,800 volts, which is about 7.5 amps, and this lasts for 30 seconds, followed by 60 seconds at 250 amps, sorry, 250 volts, one and a half amps. His body tensed and his skin turned bright pink when the first cycle began. After a brief pause, the second 90-second cycle was conducted, and then they have to wait five minutes. Can't imagine the quiet in that room for those five minutes. Yeah, because minutes. they're listening for breathing, Right. Everything. Yep. And after five minutes, a physician steps in. They put a stethoscope on his chest, and they don't find a heartbeat. What I find interesting here, I thought that this was going to be one of these cases where he was going to be romanced to a potter's field, right? 
No, his family, basically he asked his family not to come. Uh, he had two sons and he said that one of the reasons that he was pushing so hard to get this execution done is because he didn't want his kids to come to prison and see that he had become some kind of a big man in prison and to glorify that lifestyle. He knew that he messed up. He knew that he had to pay for his crimes. And he said if he could do one thing for his kids, it would be an example of what a life of violence brings you to. So that's the story of Robert Gleason. First question off the rip here. How does one inmate kill three inmates in three separate occasions? Like to me, once that happens, like, the way that you're handled as an inmate has to change, right? Well, I mean, it's the fool me once, fool me twice thing. Right. You get away with it once. Now, if you do it a second time, then you need to, you sh- something should happen. There shouldn't be a third and a fourth. Right. I mean, I, I think that anybody that falls in these classifications, like, at some point it's about punishment and it's not about rehabilitation for certain things. You know what I mean? Like, you get to a point... You're not rehabbing somebody from this. You're protecting from society from this exactly. person. Like, like you said earlier about isolation. I mean, this guy should have been there. Right, the entire Canada, time. Canada, after the second murder right. in prison. I mean, okay, you, you don't know what's going to happen after the first one. But when the second one happens, you know, you now know Yeah, time to go. Exactly. Like, I, I don't know. To me, that part of it's crazy, you know? I mean, don't get me wrong. He wasn't killing angels. You know what I mean? Like, none of these, none of, none of, none of the victims were saints. You know what I mean? But like, you still can't be putting those people at risk, especially the ones that are remanded by the state to that penitentiary. You know what I mean? Exactly. Their access to get away from this guy is not good, right? Second question. So he was the last inmate executed in the state of Virginia before they abolished capital punishment in 2021. In a situation like this, this guy is clearly a serial killer. Typically three or more people called a serial killer. In a case like this where the state doesn't have capital punishment, should it become a federal case? Well, my opinion is just yes, because it's just one less mouth to feed. Yeah. Um, I mean, and if, if, they're, if they've killed that many people, yeah. are we, are, like you said, are we rehabilitating this? No. Or, or are we just protecting the general population of our you know, people? Right. So, I mean, not to, not to oversimplify, but your dog bites somebody. You figure out why. Your dog bites four people. Maybe it's time to get rid of the dog. Or you're putting them down. Right. I mean, whatever the option is, at some point in time, like, this isn't going to keep working. He's either going out to the farm where he can't bite people or he's going to be put down. Yeah. Now, there is no federal provision currently in place for this. Like, let's just be clear. Like, that, there's nothing there for it. I'm just, like, I feel like crimes hit a certain level. There has to be the ability for the federal government to take a look at it. I mean, you would think so. Yeah. So... Third question, kind of a little different. Should a confessed and proven to be guilty multiple-time killer be able to request a death penalty without intervention by the state or lawyers? See, I would think yes, but they're going to go against it because then they're going to think you're insane. We've been through this before. Yeah. They're going to think you're crazy. Why would anybody want to die? Right. Jeez, I don't know. I'm in prison for 55 or 65 years. Right. Maybe I don't want to be. Right. Maybe my crimes do, you know, kind of go that route. Yeah. For the punishment, even if I'm in a state that doesn't. Yeah. Or maybe in their mind. I don't know. But do you think that it should be the responsibility of the state to say no? Well, basically, yes. We've heard this, I don't know how many times, how 
the state will no you you got to go through your appeals and right you should anyways even if you think that you know I mean how many times have we just heard where a guy wanted to go through with the execution but the state wanted him to appeal yeah what the fuck is going on yeah I mean there are people. I don't know if it's elected officials or what the exact situation is but with all of these, but it's like I feel like it's almost like a CYA for somebody else. You know what I mean? Very strange. I mean, if you've killed three or more people and you want to be executed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, especially a guy like this. We're talking four murders in six years. I mean, from, from the time he was arrested for the first murder to the time he was executed was six years. Mm. Like, that's insane. You know, three of which happened behind bars. I mean, I feel like there has to be a better system put in place for that kind of stuff to protect other inmates that are in there. You know what I mean? There are people that do a long time in prison, get out and never go back. And there's also people in there that are innocent. Right. So that whatever you want to say, 5% or or 10% of inmates that are innocent, you got to protect them. Right. Yeah, I agree. So I, I think that this is something that has to be looked at. I think that federal cases potentially coming out of this and, and a person that's condemned to death having the ability to control at least that. You know what I mean? Like you don't have much left, you know? Uh, one little side note here that I thought was interesting. Uh, he had a final meal, but at the request of him and his lawyers, the only request that he asked for help to make sure that they followed through on, he asked to keep it a secret. So it's not published anywhere as to what this guy's final meal was. I don't think that that's okay. I think the taxpayers are footing this bill. I think that we have a right to know what that is. He just fucked up this podcast. I mean, to me, I mean, come on. I know. I, I, I was mortified. Like I And I dug. I was hoping somebody talked to a cousin's, lawyer's, uncle's friend so I could at least preference with, with like, this is fourth-hand knowledge, but, like, this is what they – it ain't anywhere. Like, nobody seems to have that documented. Like, it has to be someplace. See, now, see, this is where my – you know, this is what I'm good at, like – why would it be secret, right? Right. What, what could he have eaten that would have been secret? Mm. Can't it can't be that hard to figure out? Like it wouldn't be a steak. Oh, keep that a secret. I mean, what was it really? I don't know. What do you think it is? I don't know. To me, what I think is, I think it was some kind of an over the top meal. I think it was one of those blow the whole thing out type deals where he was like, "Look, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be real easy to get along with tomorrow if you take care of me today." That would be my guess. If I like again, pure. But pure he, conjecture, like no idea that I, we have any idea what we're talking about I mean, here, but that's what it feels like to me. That makes sense. But at the same time, he seemed like he was like, look at me. Yeah. You better listen to me. Yeah. But maybe that's why you better listen to me. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So I don't know. I think that it's, I think that it's weird. I, and I hope that that's something that they don't do very often. Like I, I'm, we've talked about this. We're all for the Texas way of doing things. You know, your last meal is what everybody else gets that day. You know, like. We're, we're for that, but if it's not going to be that and it's going to be a special request, I think that people have a right to know what that is, you know? Sure. I mean, there's nothing about this that's a cheap process. You know what I mean? So to understand where all that money's going and how it was utilized, I think is important. You know, none of the people he executed got a last meal. You know, the one guy got a last cigarette. That's about the end of it, you know? Yeah. So, so that's what I got. Last question of the night. Was justice served in this case? Well, I mean, you can't really deny if it, I mean, he got what he deserved. I mean, yep. he killed four people, three behind bars. And he got what he wanted as well. Yeah. I think justice was served maybe just a little too late. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, if you or anybody that you know is struggling with your mental health, 
please reach out. Pick up the phone and call 1-800-662-4357. That is the National Mental Health Awareness Hotline. Somebody will be on the other end of the phone to help you out. Absolutely. So if you're having bad thoughts about hurting yourself or others, please call the number. Someone will be there to help you. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you again real soon. Stay safe.